I brought something for show and tell today. I've been pushing really hard to get the Hebrew course produced, so I, I did all the filming for the, in our second set. It's a construction set. I wear all my construction duds and my tool belt and my hard hat because that's the part where we talk about how the language is built. Right? We, talk, we, we even do run structural analyses on every letter. Look at their composition. So it's kind of a construction thing. So the third and final set of recordings that we'll be doing is in kind of a Middle Eastern tent setup. And I, uh, I, I, I got what hopefully looks like some cool biblical duds to wear for that section. And I just got it in the mail yesterday afternoon. Um, we, we popped over to our town and got it. So I wanted to show them to you guys just because they're really neat. Um, Consider this like my, usually I like to bring a humorous story or something. I don't have one today, I just have these. So I'm just going to share these cool things with you guys. I'm not very good at putting on dresses or whatever these are. The first time I tried to put this thing on, I got stuck inside of it and I couldn't find my way out. There we are. I think so. So, that's pretty cool, hey? I like the fancy embroidery here. And then this, I just, this is, this is the garment I just ordered from an organization in Israel called Begid Ivri. Begit is garment, and Ivri is Hebrew, so Begit Ivri means Hebrew garment. And they actually do garments with big four corners on them, and they, uh, they, they even tie tzitzit on them. So I ordered that. Begit Ivri is part of the whole um, preparation for the built, rebuilding of the temple organization. They, uh, they've reinstated the holy half shekel and some things like that. So, uh, so we'll check this out, hey? And then I got a cool sash to go with it. Never, I've never owned a sash before, I have to admit. So this was, this was a big one for me. Sharp, hey? Yeah. And then I... Uh, uh, have any of you like seen the picture Bible before? In the pic- Do you remember Paul in the picture Bible? He always had a big skull cap on, so I got a big skull cap for that too. This is going to totally mess up my hair, my hair, but I don't really care. So then I can wear my, my big skull cap. I don't know if my hair should be sticking out. I won't be, it won't be when I'm actually wearing it, so this is going to be uh, what we do for a Middle Eastern set in the Hebrew course. Cool. Let's go walking around here a little bit for you. See, the, the, the thing now is going to be, I have to resist the temptation to wear just wear these duds around. You know what I'm saying? Because something in me would want to like go shopping at Superstore with my wife with these things on or go walk around in the mall just to see how many people are like, well, you know how Canadian culture is, right? Like we're so polite. We'll never just stare at someone, but we'll all like try and catch glimpses when they're not looking, right? Just to like walk around and get that. But I don't think I'll do that. But anyway, so I just thought you guys would be kind of interested to... See my biblical garments here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, hey. They're like. Thank you. I think I think it's gonna look great. 
Yeah, it's actually, you can't run in this thing. I feel sorry for ladies who have to wear tight dresses or whatever. Oh man, I don't know. This is going to be hard. Can you hold my sweater down so it doesn't go flying up, Wayne? Thank you. Okay, let's see if we can do this. Oh, I'm not very good at taking... Alright, we did it. Good. There goes my keepa. <laughs> Thank you, Wayne. Because we're, we're, we're family here. And, uh, you know, like, you as a congregation are, are part of the production of this Hebrew course. So I, I enjoy bringing you little updates and just sharing that part of our lives with you. That is a, takes up a significant part of our weeks right now. Okay. How does that look? My, uh, my mirror? Just, do you want to come and just straighten it for me? Thank you, Genevieve. Genevieve's really good at helping me to, you know, look decent. Before I got married, I never knew that you weren't supposed to wear different colored shoes and belts. So she's been teaching me a lot about color coordination and things. <sighs> yeah? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Wayne. I'd like to see it on you, too. <laughs> so in today's talk, we are going to look at some of the audacious women in the first chapters of the book of Exodus, um, some very daring souls uh, we're going to talk about how God trains and calls people to make an impact for Him. And uh, we're going to look at a couple practical instructions in Paul's letter also. So um, here's, here's, a, here's a quote. Are we gonna be, I'm just going to spin something of a drosh. You know what a drosh is, right? It's like a, an exposition of a verse. I'm going to spin something of a drosh on the very first verse in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. I'd like to start by reading you a passage from the Bavli, a traditional Jewish source. It's in the book of Megillah, 29a. So this is, this is what it says. And then we'll build on this. We're going to give it a messianic context. It has been taught... Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, Come and see how beloved are Israel in the sight of God, in that to every place to which they were exiled, the Shekhinah went with them. Who can tell me what the Shekhinah is? In English we often say Shekhinah or Shekhinah, right? The Shekhinah. The, the, the verbal root of it is Shekhan. To Shekhan means to dwell. So you Shekhan in your body. You dwell in your body. Um, you Shekhan at your place of residence. So um, the Shekhinah is the th- where, where God dwells. Um, it's probably best understood in English simply as His presence. You know, of course He's omnipresent, but sometimes we talk about His presence because somehow mysteriously He's more present in some places than others. So the Shekhinah, that's the, that's the idea there. So this is the, this is the key thought, and then, and then He'll explain some of it. Every place to which they were exiled, the Shekhinah went with them. They were exiled to Egypt, and the Shekhinah was with them. As it says, Did I reveal myself unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt? And this is referencing several verses in the Tanakh. They were exiled to Babylon, and the Shekhinah was with them. As it says, For your sake I was sent to Babylon. 
and when they will be redeemed in the future, the Shekhinah will be with them. As it says, Then the Lord thy God will return thy captivity. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 30. It does not say here, Veheshiv, and he shall bring back, but Veshav, and he shall return. This teaches us that the Holy One, blessed be he, will return with them from their places of exile. So that last one is critical because it pertains to the future of national Israel and the body of Messiah. Deuteronomy 30, when it talks about him returning us, it's the classic chapter of repentance in the Torah. Then the Lord thy God will return thy captivity. It does not say here, Veheshiv, and he shall and he shall bring back, or he shall cause to return, but Veshav, that's in the singular, he will return. This teaches us that the Holy One, blessed be he, will return with them from the places of exile. So, let, let's build on this, let's build on this theme. Um, is there one person in the universe, in terms of like a historical figure, in whom the Shekhinah has dwelt fully? Yeshua, that's right. Um, Paul wrote about that several times in Colossians. In him, the fullness dwells. There's that verbal root, dwell, shechans, right? In bodily form. So, Yeshua and the Shekhinah are inseparable. Yeshua is like the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God in, in the physical dimension. Okay, furthermore, we read three times in the book of Revelation that Yeshua identified with two specific letters in the alphabet. Which letters are those? In the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, let, let, let's start with the Greek. The Greek alphabet, he has the first and last letters, which are? Alpha and Omega. That's right. So in Hebrew, we're remembering here, we have a Hebrew-speaking Savior. He appeared to John, who was a traditional Jew who grew up speaking Hebrew as his first language, praying in Hebrew, reading the Bible in Hebrew, etc. What do you think the chances are that Yeshua spoke to him in Hebrew? Very high. Very high. Okay, so if that's the case, Yeshua said, I'm the Aleph and the Tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, the interesting thing about this is, and some of you are probably aware of this, is there is a word in the Hebrew language that is spelled with those two letters, Aleph and Tav. And it's not in your English translations, because it's a little word that has a grammatical, a grammatical role to play, and they just, you just don't translate it. So it appears all over the place in the Hebrew Bible, starting in Genesis 1.1, um, points to Mashiach in very meaningful ways, I'll give you an example. Um, Zechariah. They will look upon that word whom they have pierced. The Hebrew is, the, that Hebrew word spelled Aleph and Tav is pronounced et. Everybody say et. So in Hebrew it says, they will look upon et, the Aleph and Tav, the Alpha and the Omega, whom they have pierced. That would be an example. And uh, there are hundreds of places like this throughout the Tanakh where on a peshat, on a, just a literal like, linguistic level, it's, uh, it's just a little word that has a grammatical function. But then Mashiach comes and says, that's me. That word points to me. And we begin to realize that Yeshua is all over the Torah on a, on a much deeper level than what we could imagine if we're only reading English translations. So uh, having said that, I would like to point, point out to you the, the et, the Aleph and Tav in Exodus 1.1. Here's, uh, here's Exodus 1.1 in Hebrew. And uh, let's, let's just break it down together and see how we can see the Mashiach in Exodus chapter 1 verse 1. So it says, Va'ele, the book of Exodus starts with 
the word and in Hebrew. And these, Shmot B'nai Yisrael, are the names of the sons of Israel. Habayim Mitzrayma, um, the ones who are coming to Egypt, at Yaakov. Can you see the at there? Second last word. I put it in bold. So you can see the first and the last letters, Aleph and Tav there. Okay, now, at in this context simply means with. They translate it as with. And that's a good translation. On a, just on a, on a straight linguistic level, it means with. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. However, there is a hermeneutic in uh, the traditional Jewish approach to the Torah called Al-Tikra. Have any of you heard of that? It means do not read. All means don't. Tikra is read. And uh, often the sages will say, Al-Tikra, don't read this passage as this, but rather as that. And then they'll give an alternative reading. And uh, to our English brains, maybe we would kick and scream at that concept and we'd say, no, you can't do that. The Bible has only one meaning that's true. And it's the whatever meaning my favorite translation has to offer, right? Um, The message, the message paraphrase has the only true meaning. (laughs) As an example, I'm joking with that one, of course. But the thing about Hebrew is like, Hebrew isn't like English and vice versa. Um, English is much more related linguistically to Latin and Greek, which are very precise languages. Uh, you have a wide range of synonyms to choose from to give the exact nuance that you want to word. Hebrew is not like that. Hebrew is much more basic. It has a simple vocabulary. It depends largely on context, on um, things like your countenance when you talk, body language, emotion. Unfortunately, when we're just reading the text, we miss out on a lot of that. So, anyway, in Hebrew, it's sometimes possible to read a verse in one of several different ways. And there's like a primary meaning, but sometimes there's a secondary one. And if the secondary one exalts Mashiach, even if it's not as literal, then I I regard it to be legit. If you just read through the New Testament, you read how the apostles interpreted some verses, they like really broke the rules of contextual literal interpretation. They would take verses and they would apply them to Yeshua. And you would be like, hold on a minute, you just took that as a context. That's not about Yeshua. But what you have to understand is when it comes to the Bible, it's all about Yeshua. Every verse of Torah is about Yeshua. So you're allowed to break the rules if you're applying a verse to Yeshua, assuming that it glorifies Him and it accurately reflects His role. I oh, think we could agree on that? Well, let's have a look at this verse, and we'll just, we'll just look at this specific instance. So, Aleph and Tav. Let's look at it like this. And these are the names of the son of Israel, Habayim Mitzrayimah, who are coming to Egypt. At... Read that as the first name. Al-Tikra, don't read this as with Jacob. Rather read it as, this is, the, this is the first person who went down to Egypt with Jacob. The Aleph and the Tav. The Mashiach. Could, could we contextually read that? Mashiach went with Jacob and his family down to Egypt. Yeah, Yeshua was around then. Yeshua was the angel of the Lord. Yeshua was the Malach Yahweh that appears to Moshe in this passage. Uh, Stephen references that in Acts chapter 7. Moses went down to Egypt and he, he did the rescue operation with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. It wasn't just an angel. That was the messenger of God. That was, in my opinion, that was Mashiach in his pre-incarnate form. Uh, he's been involved with Israel for a long time. He's been around. Yeah, we have some history with, with Mashiach in the Tanakh. Okay, so... Um, so here, here, here's, a, here's a drosh that I, that I built based on this verse. Um, come and see how beloved is the messianic community 
in the sight of the Mashiach. And let's remember here, when we talk about the Messianic community, we're talking about the body of Messiah. We're talking about God's remnant Israel. So Jacob and his family going down to Egypt, they were the Messianic community. There's a passage in the Psalms where God says, Touch not mine anointed. You remember that, that verse? He was talking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that, that word for anointed is Mashiach. Don't touch my Mashiachs, my Messiahs. So, I mean, God was calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob his Messiahs in the sense of them being men who were anointed by God. All right? So, Jacob and the fam going down to Egypt, they were, they were part of the Messianic community. So, let's, let's build on that thought. Come and see how beloved is the Messianic community in the sight of the Mashiach, in that to every place to which they were exiled, he, the Olaf and Tov, went with them. They were exiled to Egypt, and the Mashiach was with them. As it says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt. Et. They were exiled into the nations, and the Mashiach was with them, as it says. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the Olam Hazah, even to the end of this world. And how can it be said in this passage of the Oliphantov, blessed is his name, that he is the son of Israel? So with this reading, you could say these are the names of the sons of Israel who went down to Egypt. Oliph and Tov, who is the Mashiach. But how can you say that Mashiach is the son of Israel? Is he a son of Israel? He even said he, he's named Israel in Isaiah. Yeah, that's true. He, uh, well, in the same way that we can say that in, in Matthew 1, 1, that he was the son of Abraham and he was the son of David. So Yeshua is the quintessential son of Israel. And how... What's the second name here? Just based on, this, based on this understanding. right? And we're kind of playing with the text here, right? I'm not saying that all the Bible translators should have rendered it this way, but I think it gives us a deeper understanding into Yeshua. Who's the second person in this list? The first person is Aleph and Tov, the Mashiach. Who's the second person? Yeah. Yaakov. How can, how can it be said that Jacob is a son of Israel? Sure. As it said, the, the child is the father of the man. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and, and as it's also said in this parsha, Israel is my firstborn son. So let me ask you, who is God's firstborn son? It's a catch. It's a catch question. Who's God's firstborn son? Everyone. According according to this parsha, yeah. God says a couple of chapters later, Israel is my firstborn son. The Holy One says. Now, according to the Gospels, who is God's firstborn son? So is this a contradistinction? Is this a, is, is there something inconsistent here? How can it be that God in Exodus says, Israel is my firstborn son, and in the Gospels he says, Yeshua is my firstborn son? What if, what if Yeshua isn't only the quintessential son of Israel? What if, what if Yeshua is Israel? Like, what if he is the one who defines Israel? What, what if, like, our, our national source of identity is in him, is, is in the Messiah? Uh, there's a connection here. Um, you know, the, the whole concept of the high priest, the Kohen Hagadol, he has to identify thoroughly with his people. He has to be one of his people. The people of Israel are his brothers, it says. So if Yeshua is the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest of Israel, then he has to be, he is one with his people. He identifies fully with the Jewish people. Yeshua identifies fully with the Jewish people. And in that regard, Yeshua is Israel. Yeah, so that's how it can be said that Israel is God's firstborn son and Yeshua is God's firstborn son. Therefore, you could say that Yaakov, or Jacob, accompanied Israel, that is to say the firstborn son of God, the Messiah, 
to Egypt. So it's kind of cool. It wasn't just a Messiah company, Jacob and the fam down to Egypt. They accompanied Messiah down to Egypt. And, and so it is today. Like, Messiah doesn't go with us. We go with him, right? He is with us to the degree that we're with him. So let, let me put a little, like, let me put a little, like, um, post-claimer on that. That's some upper-level textual stuff, right? Um, I, I, for some people, that, like, talking on that level just doesn't do it for them, breaking down Hebrew words and looking at it from a Messianic perspective. But for me, like, when I study the Torah, that's how I, that's how I encounter Mashiach in the text, right? I'm like, wow, that's you, Yeshua. You were with the people of Israel when they went down to Egypt. You led Jacob and his family all the way in Exodus 1.1. So, um, I'm sorry if that's not very practical. I have no practical application there. I just think it's really cool. So anyway, let, let's, look at, let's look at some other things in this, in this text. Um, Exodus chapter, chapters 1 and onward. Um, in the book of Isaiah, we're given a principle that God declares the end from the beginning. Right? So he declares the end, that is to say the book of Revelation, the personages and the dynamics and the events in the book of Revelation from the beginning, that is to say, the book of Genesis. Could it also be said that God declares the end, that is to say, the book of Revelation from the book of Exodus? Is there like a prophetic, is there a prophetic level to the book of Exodus that has to do with the end of days? I think so. Um, we'll, we'll look at that in greater detail in a minute. But in that regard, this story is all about you and me. This story is all about our future. This story is all about our children and grandchildren. The generations to come. So let's look at this. Uh, the, the, the thing that jumped out at me this year as I was studying through the Torah is that there are like some, when you look at the key players in the early chapters of Exodus, the people who really laid the groundwork for the redemption from Egypt, they were, they were mainly women. But let's, let's, let's do a little profile of the six key players who are women in the early chapters of Exodus. Um, let's count them on our fingers. Shifra and Pua, the two midwives. Yocheved, the mother of Moshe. Jochebed, the mother of Moses, right? Miriam, the sister of Moshe. Pharaoh's daughter is the fifth, and who is the sixth? Tzipporah, that's right, the wife of Moshe. So, just as the story of Israel's redemption from Egypt began with women, so too the story of the human race's redemption from the evil one began with the promise in Genesis 3 to the woman that her seed would crush his head. And, so too the story of the coming of that Redeemer began in the Gospel of Luke with Elisheva and Miriam. Do you, think it was a, uh, do you think it was a coincidence that the sister of Moses, who was like a, a key player in the redemption from Egypt, was named Miriam, and that the mother of the Messiah was named Miriam? And that, like, there were Miriams all over the place in the early Messianic community? Yeshua's band of disciples? No. For sure not. There's a, there's a distinct correlation there. So, Genesis chapter 3. The woman is promised that her seed will crush the head of the serpent, symbolizing the evil one. The early chapters of Exodus, women are the key players in laying the groundwork for the redemption from Egypt. The, in the Gospels, Luke, it's women who are the key players, again, in preparing the way for uh, for that salvation. So you, you could say that like the women in Exodus are the heroes of this story. Really. I mean, okay, Moses and Aaron come along and they do some pretty impressive stuff. But they wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for those key players in the first couple of chapters. You could say like the women in this story are daring. They are willing to take life-threatening risks to see life preserved. They are audacious. 
They are willing to step out of their comfort zones to see their families and nation rescued. They are brave and not afraid to disregard the evil demands of the most powerful man on planet Earth. They are strong women. They are women of action. That, that is what those six women were all about. I mean, we, we read the story of Miriam, and we grew up like, Tirza has her little children's storybook about Miriam, right? And it's like, it's kind of a nice story, really. But when you think about it, like, that girl had guts. Like, she was standing out there watching her brother because she didn't want to see him die. You know, Pharaoh's daughter comes along. I mean, like royalty. Some of the highest people in the whole land. And she had the guts to say, to, to step into that situation and to, to offer her consultative services. To make a suggestion, to say, why don't I do this? She, she took that situation and she steered it in the direction of life. She steered it in the direction of her brother being rescued. I kind of wonder how many times Moses, like, thanked her for that later on. Like, man, thank, thank you, Miriam, you know? Who knows? But, and, and that's just example. Um, Shifra and Pua. I mean, really, you appear before the dictator of the world superpower of the day, and he asks you specifically to do something, and you disregard his orders, and then you go back to him and you tell him a barefaced lie. I mean, they didn't back down. Like, those women stood for righteousness. And, and, and many lives were saved as a result. And, and, and the story goes on um, st- w- with that. Um, th- these women laid the groundwork for the redemption of their people. They prepared the way for the coming of Israel's Redeemer. And uh, there's an axiom in Jewish tradition that as it was in the redemption from Egypt, so it will be in the final redemption. So, of course, you know, there are these, there are these passages in the apostolic writings that, that counterbalance this, you know, about, about, about women fostering a gentle spirit and a quiet spirit, etc. But like, but, like, sisters in the Messianic community, we need you. You have a critical role to play. You are lifesavers. Don't back down. And, and we'll back you. And uh, hopefully we can all move as one as the Spirit moves us. And, of course, hopefully us guys will play our important roles, too. Or maybe she said, okay, yeah, maybe they didn't tell a lie. Maybe they just like really dilly-dallied on their way to the birth, hey? Yeah, like, okay, hon, like, never mind. The, let's not drive like 120 clicks to this birth. Let's like drive about 30 on the shoulder. Right. You know, and two hours later they get to the birth. It was like, oh, you had the baby already. Wow, you're so lively. Maybe that happened, hey? Or maybe it happened once. Maybe it happened just once that they arrived too late in the birth that already happened, hey? Okay, we'll, we'll give that to them. We'll, we'll assume that if they, they, they feared God that they didn't tell a barefaced lie to Pharaoh. Okay, I, I think we can give that to them. Okay, so moving on from that, the early stories about Moshe are such a sharp contrast to these like shining, shining heroes. In, in these first stories, like, okay, so Moses, he, okay, he kills a guy, he really botches the job, and, um, and then he has to run for his life, and he's like, he's just kind of out there in the backside of the wilderness, um, working minimum wage for 40 years, and by the time he's done, like, he doesn't want to do anything for God, like, all of his vim and vigor is gone, he just makes tons of excuses, he finally makes God mad, Wow. And then to top it all off, so they finally like, so he goes to his father-in-law. <clears throat> Instead of saying like, God spoke to me and I have a mission, he's like, well, I think it's about time I go down to Egypt and you know, see how the family's doing, see if they're still alive, right? He totally hides like, his, his intent. And, and so you know, they, they get in their beater and they're driving to Egypt and they stop at a motel and God comes that night and he's going to kill Moses in the motel. 
well, okay, it was an inn or whatever, wherever it is they stayed, right? I'm just kind of trying to tell the story in a way that would be more meaningful to us. He's going to kill Moses because Moses didn't even bother to circumcise his son. I mean, Moses never even brought his son into the covenant of Abraham. Never mind what God said in Genesis 17 about like, this is a law forever for all of your generations, that every one of your males will be circumcised on the eighth day. I'm sure Moses knew about this. Like, for some reason, Moses just was not, he was not in the loop here. You know, in Yaakov, uh, James, in his, in his book, he says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So we could also infer that Moses was a man with a nature like ours. So I can say, okay, I'm a guy, just like Moses was a guy, so I am going to have a tendency towards being a slouch. I am going to have an inclination in me to be sloppy when it comes to God's commandments and valuing my heritage. Because, I mean, Moses was like a superhero, right? I mean, he had a call from God. And yet, there was this side to him where he was just like, he could check out and he didn't even care. And God would have killed him for it if his wife hadn't, like, stepped in and saved the day and bailed him out. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is the untold story of Moses. It's told, but sometimes we don't think about it. But I think, I think it bears telling. Because it just says so much about the challenges that males face, that I face. And it says so much about, like, the mercy of God. Wow, and how he uses people who like are really, really human. So that scared him within an inch of his life that night, hey? He realized he almost got killed, never mind the mission. So, I mean, th- think about this. Like, if Zipporah hadn't stepped in as a helper, as a lifesaver, like, Moses would have never made it to Egypt. The exodus would have never happened through his hands. He would have been a footnote of history. And the Holy Torah certainly would have been given, wouldn't have been given through the hands of Moses. So, you know, we wouldn't sing like, Vezot HaTorah, Moshe. We would sing like, okay, that's like the tune, like, and this is the Torah that Moses set. It's like a passage, right? When you hoist the Torah scroll, we don't have a Torah scroll, so we don't do that liturgy. But, like, we don't have a Torah scroll yet. But, like, we wouldn't sing that. We'd be singing like, Vezot HaTorah, Asher Sam Aharon, or some other guy, Lifnei B'nei Israel. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, like, Zipporah, again, Zipporah saved the day there. Like, due to her quick thinking, due to her action, um, it, all hap- it all went through. Yeah, Zipporah was a Midianite, so she was grafted in. She wasn't even like a natural-born daughter of Israel or whatever, but she obviously took it seriously. Yeah, and I mean, I, I have to say in my life, like, Genevieve and I have committed to praying together every morning, and, oh, man, like, that's hard. There are mornings when, okay, I hit the ground running sometimes, like I'll spend some time in prayer on my own, and then I'll hit the ground running, and I'll be like totally enveloped in my work life, and uh, then Genevieve will be like, Izzy, uh, can we pray together? I was like, and I'll be like, dude, dude, I forgot again. Like, I don't know. So I, I, I can say in my life too, like I, I really value the role that, that my wife plays in keeping me sharp spiritually, in being like the voice of my conscience that I sometimes forget. It'll still be the same 30 years. You want to tell us a story? <laughs> or, or when I forget, to, when I set my alarm clock on Shabbat morning for 5.30 p.m. instead of 5.30 a.m., I'm just thankful we have two alarm clocks and my wife always sets hers right. So, that happened last Shabbat. So, I mean, we wouldn't have been here last Shabbat if it wasn't for Genevieve. Or we would have been here at like 10.30 or something. Still like brushing our teeth. So, anyway, all that, all that to say... These are, these are some encouraging things here. Okay, um, one more thing. Okay, like, okay, I, I like never talked about pregnancy and childbirth stuff before I was married. 
because I come a fa- from a family of all boys. And after Genevieve and I first like became pregnant with Tirza, like I felt like all we ever talked about with everybody was pregnancy and childbirth, like all the time. After a couple of months, I despaired of ever talking about anything else. And it was good because like we were we were planning to do a natural birth at home, um, and so it was helpful like talking about these things because I was going to be Genevieve's main um, birth coach, and I was like in a really steep learning curve there. So it was good, but at the same time, I was like, wow. So anyway, I, I'm going to talk about just like pregnancy and childbirth for a minute here. Just because I can now, kind of. But it's just, there, there, are, two, there are two notable things here. Um, firstly, here's a cool Hebrew, like, okay, you know an aha moment? I had an aha moment. Um, like, okay, so it was our first baby. I didn't want to do a natural home birth at our farm because we're an hour from the city. And uh, I am not well enough versed in births to... I just didn't feel right about that, right? So we had the birth at my mom's place, and just in the last couple of years in Saskatoon, they brought in a new department at, at the hospital. It's a, a, a team of midwives, and they have an area in the hospital where they have as their base, and they go out and they assist with births. And it's a really nice situation. So anyway, we felt like, okay, for our first birth, for sure, we want to do it with the midwife, at least available, maybe not even in the room, but available in case there are any complications, right? So... So that's what we did, and uh, it was helpful. So we went to the hospital, and um, they were like, I don't know, they had this, I think they had a doll thing, and they were showing us how the doll comes out and the right way and how to help the doll come out of the womb and all this stuff. And, um, and then they, they had this cool purple thing on the floor. It was like a, kind of like a chair, but it was more like two big circles kind of or something. It was like, I don't know, a foot and a half tall or something. Kind of like hard foam. I was like, what is that? And... Uh, one of the midwives like, told me that's a birthing stool. So the woman sits on the thing and then the baby can come out in the middle because it's not like a, just a solid one. There's a big opening in the middle, right? And uh, I all of a sudden realized something. Okay, and this is something I've puzzled over. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 16, he says, this is Pharaoh talking. I'll try and say it in a sinister voice. When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. So anyway, did you notice it refers there to the birth stool? Do you know what the Hebrew word for birth stool is? It's ovnaim. Everybody say ovnaim. Ovnaim is in the plural, it's in like the dual sense, right? So it means two of something, a set of something. And it's the root is like evan or stone. So ovnaim literally means two stones or double stones. So all of a sudden it was like, in the hospital, I was like, ding, ding, I get it. That's why Hebrew birth stools are called ovnaim, because it's exactly what it looked like. You know, the, the birthing woman sits on these, this thing, and then the baby can come out in the middle. So, anyway, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good talking about childbirth stuff here, hey, Genevieve? Yeah. So, anyway, I'll, I'll say one more thing about that. In Exodus 1.19... The, the NASB says the midwife said to Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get there um, so how, how do your translations render that term vigorous lively lively okay so the Hebrew term there is chayot everybody say chayot Okay, you know the root, you know l'chaim, right, to life? So chai is the root of that. So they're lively, they're vigorous. The thing is, um, that's also the word for animals. The chayot 
are like the animals out in nature. Not in the sense of wild animals, but in the sense of like things that are alive and live in natural parameters, uh, who live instinctually. And I think that might actually give us some insight into the birthing techniques of the ancient Hebrews and also into their, uh, their whole philosophy of, 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 of childbirth. It's like they say they were chayot. Um, in other words, like they gave birth instinctually in a natural way. And uh, we, we opted for a more natural birth. And I, you know, we read up on it. And if for anyone who's going to have a baby, I don't know, Wayne and Sharon, if you're thinking maybe to have another baby, um, I, you know, I, I, I encourage you, read up on the difference between a natural home birth and a hospital birth. There are some significant differences. And I have to admit, it was, it was really special doing a home birth. I would highly recommend it for anyone. I mean, it, it does take a little more learning. You can't just pass the whole thing off to the doctor, right? But I mean, for me, that was good. As a husband, that was good. I'm not just sitting there like wringing my hands and chewing my, the ends of my fingers off and freaking out. It's like I'm involved, I'm engaged, and I'm taking ownership of my daughter's life from the very beginning. Right? And that was really good. It really helped me on a psychological level with being involved in my daughter's life from the very beginning. So anyway, I highly recommend that. So that was my talk on pregnancy and childbirth for the year. I hope I didn't make anyone too uncomfortable. So anyway, if, if Wayne and Sharon, you are planning on having any more children, we could share with you some things we've learned about childbirth and stuff. No? <laughs> that wouldn't be something to worry about. Hey. <laughs> let's look at the prophetic. Let's look at the prophetic elements in this parasha. Um, we talked about how he declares the end, that is to say the book of Revelation, events in Revelation, personages in Revelation, from the beginning, that is to say Genesis and Exodus. So Genesis and Exodus are the prophetic keys to unlocking what the book of Revelation is all about. And I'm going to be honest, when people start talking about Revelation, I usually get kind of weirded out. Because it's often kind of freaky. Like, I don't know, I, I heard this really humorous talk from a comedian recently about how some people like watch the news and they just check stuff off in the book of Revelation, right? Oh, there it is. It's the book of Revelation, right? Fourth seal or whatever. Just kind of sit there with your book, with the Bible and check stuff off as you watch the news or whatever. I, I'm not like that. Like I, the, the Jewish approach to prophecy is prophecy isn't always given so that you can predict stuff or so that you can nail the date. Prophecy is given so that you will be prepared, so that you will prepare yourself, and so that when it happens, you can say, that was prophesied. Uh, I'll give you an example. The coming of Messiah. Like, really. There were so many prophecies about Mashiach. Like, you know, they, Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and my feet. Um, Isaiah 53. Um, you know, uh, Hosea 6, where it talks about, let's return to him and he will raise us up in three days. I mean, it was all over the place. But really, how many people in, 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 in Second Temple Judea got it? How many people were sitting there with a checklist saying, okay, so Mashiach's going to be from Bethlehem, he's going to be crucified, you know, pierced through his hands and feet, three days later he'll rise again. I mean, even Yeshua's like inner circle, he said it to them over and over again, like right in their faces, flat out, and they didn't get it. Even though the prophecies are all over the Tanakh. So could it be that the book of Revelation will be similar? Could it be that maybe we're not going to be able to figure some stuff out until we're in the middle of it? I don't know. But what I can say is let's, when we read the book of Revelation, let's just be like the, the smart virgins. And instead of only having one set of batteries for our flashlight, let's, like, let's stockpile on batteries. So that light will like burn all night long. You know what I'm saying? 
I'm trying to think of a modern analogy for the whole oil thing, you know, we don't like run around with oil lamps and whatever. So, anyway, having, having said that, let's look, at some, let's look at some things in the book of Exodus that I think you could peg pretty solidly, things that we can look for in the future, things that are already playing out around us. Uh, Revelation chapter 11 talks about the two witnesses. Some people suggest that that could be like Judaism and Christianity or a Jude and Ephraim or something like that. When you read the passage, it just does not fit. Uh, they die. Their bodies lie in the streets of the city that's mystically called Sodom in Egypt for three days. The whole world's partying. Then it says that they're like resurrected from the dead and they go up to God. I don't know. That just how can Ju- uh, that, that does not sound like Judaism and Christianity to me. And then after that, an earthquake occurs. So I mean, it's it's. I think if we approach the scriptures with a literal approach, it's probably going to be two literal people. I would love to be in wherever it's going to be. Maybe in Jerusalem when they're doing their thing. That would be an honor to just be like, have front row seats. And like, these guys are going to be like Moses and Aaron all over again. These guys are going to be like the Elijahs of this generation or the next generation or whatever, eh? So anyway, Revelation chapter 11 talks about these guys. <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not saying anything like um, dogmatic here, okay? This is just, these are some of my musings on this passage, just so you know. But one of the things it says is in verse 6, Revelation 11:6, that these two guys have power to turn water into blood. What is that reminiscent of? Moses, Exodus chapter 4, verse 9, says, If they will not believe even these two signs, or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Okay? So, this thing with the two witnesses, this is the key. This is the key that connects these two passages very closely. So, Moshe and his mission, this dynamic of the showdown between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the false gods of this world, the showdown between his, uh, his champions, Moses and Aaron, and then the champion of the, the dark side, Pharaoh, it's going to happen all over again. You can, you can peg that. Moses and Aaron are prototypes of the two witnesses. There's probably going to be another Exodus scenario all over again. I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know who all the key players are going to be. I don't know some of those details. But it's going to happen. Because, hey, like when Moses and Aaron, when they like hit Egypt, man, that rocked the whole nation. The world was turning upside down. It's going to happen again. Uh, there are prophecies about how there's a, there is a, an exodus to come. In Jeremiah 16, for instance, it talks about how there's an exodus to come that will dwarf the historical exodus from Egypt. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of some things that I'm holding in my mind. This passage is very much about our future. So let's look at a couple of specifics here. Um, exodus chapter 1, verse 10. Okay. What was Pharaoh's main concern? What did he fear? The reason we want, to, we want to focus on that is because there was a dark spirit behind Pharaoh. And it wasn't Pharaoh thinking on a natural level. It was the dark spirit thinking strategically about how to retain a grip on Egypt and on planet Earth. So if we can see what that dark spirit was afraid of and what it was working to prevent, we'll have a pretty good clue about what God wants to do today with his people and what he's going to do in the future. So what is his concern in Exodus 1.10? else they will multiply, in other words, reproduce themselves. So his first fear was Yeshua's disciples reproducing themselves, going out into all the nations. 
bringing people to God and His Torah. Else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us. And how does it end? How does your, how does your translation render that, that ending there? And leave the land altogether and shall go up from the land? What's that, Emily? Escape, okay. The Hebrew verbal root there is Allah. Everybody say Allah. It means to go up. Okay? So when you, when you Allah, you go up. Uh, for instance, when you go up to read from the Bima, the reading lectern, you are making Aliyah to the Bima, right? You are making a go up to the Bima. Um, when you move to Israel, you immigrate. What's the word for making for? Uh, I just gave it away. What's the word for? Yeah, it's making Aliyah. Okay, so the, the concept of making Aliyah, going up to the land of Israel, is an ancient concept, and it was the thing that Pharaoh feared most. Pharaoh feared the people of Israel leaving his country and going up to the land of Israel, going up into the inheritance that God had promised the forefathers. As it was then, so it is today. Here, here are two more verses along those lines just to nail the thought home. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. This is Yahweh speaking now. He says, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land. So when, when the power of God came down to rescue His nation, He did it so that He could bring them up so that he could cause them to make Aliyah. Um, one more verse along those lines. Exodus 3.17 This is the Holy One addressing Moshe now. And he says, So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the otherites. So, he gets that again here. He says, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. And that's what Pharaoh feared. He feared the covenant people making Aliyah, going up. So what does that look like today? What does that look like in your spiritual life, in my spiritual life? What does that look like for us as families? What does that look like for us as a movement, a Messianic Jewish movement, or for the body of Messiah? Here, here, here are some verses that, that may, may pertain to that. Ephesians 2. We, I, I won't quote too many verses there, but that's where Paul says that to uh, believers from the nations that they are no longer distanced from the covenants of promise. You know what? Yeah, I, I think I, I do want to look at that. Because I think this is the key. Like, when the body of Messiah begins to tap into these verses and take them literally and seriously, like, the powers of darkness are going to be shaken. He says, therefore, remember, in verse 11, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were, notice past tense, at that time separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants, notice covenants, plural, of promise, that means not just the new covenant, the previous ones, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. Okay, so notice there, he's saying, there was a time when you were far off, you're not anymore. You are now a member of the commonwealth of Israel. You have a share in the covenants of promise. One of those promises is inheriting the land of Israel forever, including the Gaza Strip and the West Bank as an everlasting possession for the seed of Abraham, which is the Messiah, and all those who are in him. And the East Bank. 
<laughs> totally. So just stop and think about this. Like when we as the body of Messiah get a hold of these verses, when we take our ownership in the covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the covenants through Moses and David, when we begin to take those promises literally and value those promises and hasten the day when they come true, when God gives all of the land of Israel to all the people of Israel, not only ethnic Jews, but those who have been, quote, grafted in, man, we are going to break out in the power of Elohim. Like, Pharaoh was very terrified of that prospect in his time, And the dark spirit that was behind Pharaoh was still around. He still has the same strategies. And I believe that he's equally terrified of that prospect today. In my opinion, that dark spirit is working overtime to keep believers back from understanding who they are and what their inheritance is. What the covenants and promises are all about. Because you know what? When we begin to get it in the body of Messiah, we are going to start going up. We are going to start making Aliyah. And that signals the end of the control that that dark spirit has on geographical regions and people living in those regions. Okay, let's look at another couple strategies here. Um, When Pharaoh realized the people of Israel were about to, they were going to multiply, they were going to break out of his control, they were going to become uncontrollable in, in, in that regard. And there was that prospect of them going up. What did he do? Uh, he, he started killing their babies, firstly. It, that's a classic. It still happens today. The great thing is, it's like, when the kingdom of darkness does that, when they implement strategies to kill innocent babies, I'm talking about the spiritual kingdom of darkness here, they're shooting themselves in both feet. Because God is just. And when innocent lives are snuffed out, then God will react. He will respond. He will come through for innocent people, and He will bring righteousness. So, exactly. So, like, but that—that's a strategy of the evil one. All right, um, it's very much around today. China, the uh, one birth policy equals so many abortions because every family is only allowed to have one child, and most of them shoot for a son. Um, in Israel today, Israel as a nation has the highest abortion rate per capita in the world. Um, girls in the army are allowed two free abortions during their two mandatory years of service in the military. So that dark spirit behind Pharaoh is really digging in his heels in our generation. Why? Because there is a redemption coming. Because there is an awakening coming. Because there is a generation that contains people who are going to be a very powerful voice for God in every sector of our society. And they are going to confront the Pharaohs in our society. And they are going to show Egypt who the living God is, and they are going to make a real show of the false gods of this world too. Same thing. So um, that's one thing. Here's another strategy. Uh, keep Israel really, really busy. Like just run them till they're exhausted. Um, burdens. Put lots of really heavy burdens on them. Like keep them, keep them totally, just totally dead and um, distracted. Keep them really distracted. And um, having... What? Yeah, and um, okay, you know what? It's a, it's a commandment to work six days. And um, we work with all our hearts. And there are seasons when we work harder. Like, um, I'm in a season when I'm working really hard with producing this Hebrew course. Like, I clock, like, I don't know, 80-hour work weeks or something right now. Um, Mike and Shoshana, I know that this is a season when you're really, you're really engaging and you're investing and 
So that's not what I'm referring to. This is what I'm referring to. What is the day when God, that God has given the human race to be refreshed, to find rejuvenation, to rest? Yeah, his, his, his seventh day of the week. It was all the way from Genesis and uh, it, it continues today. Yeshua was a, a great example to us of that. So, um, maybe, maybe Pharaoh in Egypt didn't let the people of Israel rest on Shabbat. Maybe he kept them working. Maybe. Maybe he kept them running around the clock. Maybe he didn't let them celebrate God's festivals. I, I don't know how in touch they were with God's festivals. But we do read in Genesis 1.14 that the Creator made the moon for the Moedim, for the appointed times. So who knows? I mean, maybe Adam and Eve were in touch with some of the Creator's cycles, with some of the appointed times. Uh, whatever the case may be, by Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, this is, um, this is what we read. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. Why? That they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. So, regardless of whether Israel knew about the appointed times, he was saying, I have an appointment with my people, and you've got to let them go, because they need to keep it with me. So, you know, give them the day off. In fact, they need at least three days off, they said. We need to go three days into the wilderness. And Pharaoh dug in his heels. He said, no way I'm not giving extra days off. I already have statutory holidays with the, the Egyptian calendar. Isn't that enough for you guys, you lazy bums, trying to take, try, take all, these, um, all of these um, work days off for all of your festivals and stuff? Like, kind of like that, right? But, but like, think about it. Like, isn't, that what, isn't that what often happens today? We as believers, we get sucked into the busyness of life. We get, we get sucked into sometimes disregarding God's Shabbat. And I mean, okay, we do live in Egypt. There are times when some people do need to work on Saturdays, and I understand that, right? But I'm just saying in general... Like, I wonder if that is an tactic of the evil one today. What if the whole body of Messiah just disengaged from the world system every Shabbat, every Friday evening to Saturday evening? What if, like, what if the whole body of Messiah every Friday evening just said, okay, like, unplug the internet, turn off my cell phone, I'm not taking any calls from work, I am just going to spend time with my family. We're going to sit down every Friday evening for a candle at dinner. You know, I, I'm going to bless my wife and bless my children. We're going to spend time together. And we're going we're gonna to study the Torah. We're going to invest quality time as community. What if the whole body of Messiah started doing that every Saturday for a 24-hour block of time? I'm telling you, like, we wouldn't have so many of the family problems that we have. We wouldn't have kids that would rather be with their friends than spend time with family. I, I believe that. Hey, guys. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah. So, here's the thing. Today, we live in a, quote, free society. People can take work days off if they, if they choose to for religious reasons. That's actually, that is legally mandated in, our, in, our, in, our, in Canada. So, Satan can't just be like, okay, you're not allowed to, you've got to work every day. You're not allowed to take these days off, right? How does he do it now? What if sometimes he deceives us into misunderstanding God's Shabbat as being a burden, so that we don't even want to take it off, so that we don't choose to take God's Shabbat off. We just think, oh man, Sabbath observance? Like, that looks like a bunch of bondage and legalism to me. What a burden. Not allowed to do this. Not allowed to do that. What if sometimes that's the approach that he takes? I, I think it is. I, 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 I'm sad about that. Like, Shabbat is such a treasure. It really is. Like, I just described to you like the, the warmth of Shabbat and the, the spiritual rejuvenation that happens on, on an individual and a family and a community level. 
And when people think that it's a burden and they just have this bad attitude like, oh, you, know, you can't go Christmas shopping on Saturday? Like, bummer for you. Man, you're really missing out, you know? Like, I'm like, I'm not missing out. You don't know what you're missing. And, and if you have a family, your family doesn't know what they're missing. Or if you're going to have a family, you don't know what you're going to be like ripping your family off from. You know, Shabbat is a treasure. Paul said, every one of God's commands is good. God gave a bunch of commands about Shabbat, and they're all good. They're all so good. So, anyway, what's another example? When we look at uh, the feasts, the feasts of Israel, in passages like Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, and we say, man, beep, old covenant, don't want to have anything to do with it, looks divisive, um, whatever. We all have, we, we've, all heard, we've all heard the arguments why people shouldn't bother with God's feasts. Even though God said they were forever. Even though Jesus did them every year of his whole life. What, 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 just think about this. Like God, okay, so when God comes to Pharaoh and he wants to pick a fight with Pharaoh and he wants to show up all those false gods, look at how he, he goes about it. He says, okay, Pharaoh, I want to start letting my people take Shabbat off. I want my people to start celebrating the feasts. And Pharaoh digs in and he says, no way. Right? And then the show is on. So what does that look like in the body of Messiah today? What's going to happen when we just throw off all the deception about God's feasts? We recognize that these things are for the body of Christ today. We start doing them. Even if we were the only people, even if you were the only person in Prince Albert who was doing it, would you still do it? Would you still plan ahead? Would you still take Yom Kippur off from work? Would you, would you plan for every festival, months in advance? If you were the only person in PA, would you still stand for God's Torah, as Yeshua taught us? That's where it's at, Right? It's not whether we as a group is doing it. We're not doing this for status quo. We're not going along with the crowd. We're doing this because, hopefully, each of us are doing it because we believe in it. And nothing can stop us. Yeah, that's our, that's our approach. And that, that, is going to, that is going to show down Pharaoh just like has happened in ancient times. Um, yeah, all that stuff. Burdens, stuff. So, you know, as Yeshua leads us, we experience His freedom. And it is so good. So that's where it's at, hey? Um, one other dynamic here, uh, Exodus 5, 1, same verse, he said, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. And then in um, 5, verse 3, and several other places, he's identified as the God of the Hebrews. So this is, a, this is a battle over identity, too. This is like the Creator stepping onto the scene of world history and, very, and, and clarifying who He is. And uh, if the, some of these scenarios in Revelation are like big, blown-up... Um, repeats of this exodus, then hey, he's going to... You know what? By the time Yeshua comes back, people are going to get a really clear picture of who the God of Israel is. The world is going to see that there is a God in Israel. And uh, I hope that it really hits the media too. I hope that people will like be sitting there watching... I don't know. What, what news do you watch in the evening? CTV or CBC or Fox or whatever, and they show like people being raised from the dead, like state funerals being interrupted and seeing people come out of the coffins. I mean, really, if that happened on the media, do you know what it would do for the honor of the name of the God of Israel in this world? Yeshua said, the things that I've done, you're going to do greater things. Yeshua did interrupt funeral processions. He, he stopped the funeral procession on the way out of Nain. He went and he touched the coffin, freaked everybody out. His disciples were probably like, oh no, what is he doing? Oh shoot, oh shoot. They're probably like hiding in the background. And I mean, he raised the guy from the dead. Think, think, about, like, think about how that impacted Israel. Think about how that shot through the, the Judean grapevine. 
yeah. I mean, it's going to happen again. Maybe we're just in training. Um, let's, let's finish this study with a, couple, with a couple pointers about the training that God has for every, every disciple of Yeshua in the call, as, as we see it from Moses. Because, hey, Moses wasn't like this, this, this big, super spiritual guy. Like, like, you and me, like, we're in the same category here, right? We, we talked about that already. So I, I, won't, I won't lay that whole groundwork. So let's just look at this for a second, because Moses has some stuff to teach us. Um, firstly, Exodus 3, verse 1. So Moses spends 40 years in, in the wilderness, like really outside of the world system. He's not very in touch with, you know, Egypt and all its trends, I think. And um, 3 verse 1, it says that he was... Um, okay, and here it says he was in the west side of the wilderness. The Hebrew term there is ahar. Everybody say ahar. Ahar means back. Okay, so he was in the back side of the wilderness, like the very back of the wilderness. It's also the word for after. Okay? So it was like saying it was at the end of his wilderness stage of life. He was at the end of the wilderness season in his life. And things begin to happen. But let's just, let's just key on for that for a second. Um, how does God train men and women? God trains them by sending them to the wilderness. That is a key, that is a key theme. How do, we, how do we often train men in religious society? We train men by sending them to seminary. And I'm not denigrating seminary. There is a place for academic credentials. There is a place for study. I love studying. But seminary is touted as being the complete package for training. And just because people have some letters after their name doesn't mean anything when it comes to them representing Mashiach or being a true minister of the gospel. Um, here's, here's, the, here, here, here's, here's my understanding of it. Like, the first approach, when God sends people to the wilderness, results in men who fear God alone who listen to God alone, and who speak fearlessly on His behalf. That is what happens when someone goes through the wilderness, and they pass with flying colors. The second approach, if you just tout going to seminary and getting your degree as the, like the be-all and end-all of preparation for the kingdom, it all too often has produced and produces men who fear church boards instead of God, who listen to the voting majority in their church instead of listening to the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and who speak on behalf of denominational party lines instead of speaking on behalf of God's truth. And I didn't notice I didn't say all the time, I said all too often this has happened. And listen, like I'm a pastor's kid, I'm a pastor's grandkid, okay? Um, I've watched the inside of this thing. And you get the picture. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's here's um here's 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 a very practical thing in verse three. This is where it all happened. Moses he sees this burst his bush and the thing isn't burning, right? And he has two choices. He can just kind of go on with life, or he can say in verse three, "I've got to turn aside and see this thing." So just key in on that thought of turning aside. Okay. Um. Here's here's my encouragement to you based on this idea. If you want to experience the call of God, if you want to really encounter the living God, then turn aside. Uh, foster a healthy curiosity and inquisitiveness. Learn to ask questions. Develop an investigative approach. Never become an unquestioning slave to the status quo or an unthinking servant of schedule and routine. Let the irregular, like that burning bush, break you out of your ruts. Let out-of-the-ordinary situations be your signposts that God is right around the corner and He's waiting to encounter you.
That's on a practical level what I get out of that. Um, 3 verse 11, he says like, who am I to go and rescue the people? And what, is, what does Yahweh say? Moses learns very fast that it's not about who he is, it's about who the Holy One is. And that's very true today too. Too often we look at people on a human level and we judge them and we criticize them because they have flaws or because they're annoying or because they have a twitch like me or whatever, right? And we write God's messengers off because because they offend us or because they don't match our expectations. So let's remember that. It's not about you and me. It's about Him. The only thing we should be asking is, can I hear the voice of Messiah right now? Is this the Spirit of Truth speaking? Yeah. Oh, please do. He's here now, right on. Oh yeah, he was in that burning bush. That wasn't around the corner, was it? Thank you, Greg. Okay, um, also, the Almighty, he says, like, you know, usually it's understood as him saying, like, I am who I am. And the Hebrew says, Eya, Asher Eya. Eya literally means I will be. If you want to say I am, you say Hove or Ani Hove. It's a different word, okay? So Eya means I will be. And then Asher can mean one of four things. In Hebrew, it means who, what, when, and where. Okay, so it, it, like this one phrase, he's saying, I will be who I will be, I will be what I will be, I will be when I will be, and I will be where I will be. It sounds like he's calling the shots there, hey? What I get out of there is like, Moses, be quiet. I'm the one doing this thing, now let's go. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come through for you. I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of what I get out of that. So... I'm trying to get the dynamic approach of that there. Um, 4.12, he says, I'm going to be with your mouth, so don't worry about your, um, don't worry about your oratorical skills. Um, similarly, Yeshua says to us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, When they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you're to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you're to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Um, 3 verse 12, Let's finish our, our examination of Exodus with this. In Exodus 3, verse 12, we learn that... Okay, <laughs> I love this. He says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. You get that? That's the sign. So he's saying, so um, this is the sign that I've sent you when you come back here with the whole nation. It's kind of nice. Instead of him being like, I'm going to give you a little sign light right now, a little miracle or something. He's like, the proof that I sent you is the success of your mission. I wonder if that isn't true for us today also. Could it be that this, your successful accomplishment of your mission will be proof that God sent you on that mission? And that doesn't just apply to us as individuals. That applies to us as a community. So, I wanted to point out one thing from Romans here. It'll take about one minute and then we'll finish. We've been talking about uh, this, this Jew and Gentile concept and where Paul uses these terms. I just wanted to point it out to you. Uh, I had mentioned last week that some people regard the term Gentile as a dirty word. Like for some believers, some people in the Messianic community, if you, call them, if you refer to them as a Gentile, they'll be like, I'm not a Gentile. And they, they will be hurt or offended or insulted. And um, okay, there is some mistreatment going on in the Messianic community of non-Jewish people. Sometimes Messianic Jews can get a little arrogant, a little unkind, um, can have a little click thing going, where non-Jews, the first question you're asked when you walk into a Messianic Jewish congregation is, are you Jewish? And you get treated differently, depending on, what, on whether or not you are. Okay, so that is out there. So for some people, this is, this is a sensitive issue. And I understand that. And as you know, I'm a very vocal voice. I can get kind of mad about that mistreatment. 
I, I, I've spoken out against them many times. So we're not going to go there. Um, I'm just looking at Paul's letters here, though, right? And um, in Romans 16, verse 5, he, he references, um, here, we'll start in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Messiah Yeshua, her, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. All the congregations of the Gentiles. Did you notice there, he wasn't referring to these congregations in past tense as ex-Gentiles. He was calling these congregations in the diaspora, these faith communities that were primarily composed of halachically non-Jewish people, as churches of the Gentiles. So, this is Paul talking here, right? I assume that Paul wasn't incorrect in using this terminology. So there is a place for referring to people who aren't, quote, halachically Jewish as Gentiles. That's what I get out of that. Um... Also in verse 7, Romans 15, verse 7 and 8, he talks about how salvation has come to the Jewish people to glorify God in a special way, and salvation has come to the nations of the world, the Gentiles, to glorify God in another way. Let's just look at that to finish here. He says in verse 8, I see the Mashiach has become a servant to the circumcision, that is to say the Jewish people, right? The legally Jewish people, the circumcision, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So why has Yeshua become a servant to the legally Jewish people? That's right. To confirm the promises to the fathers. And for the Gentiles, why? To to glorify God for His mercy. So this is what this looks like. When, when a person from a Jewish background comes to faith, their salvation as a Jewish individual glorifies God for His faithfulness to the promises that He made in ancient times to the patriarchs. He's coming through on those promises. He's, retur- he's turning the hearts, like we read in the chapter of Repentance, Deuteronomy 30. When salvation comes to a person in the nations who's not Jewish... That glorifies God also in a special way. It glorifies God for His mercy. Flat out mercy. It's like, I did not deserve anything. I was not entitled to anything. He just came into my life and unilaterally showed me His mercy. So, you know, when we... So, I mean, there's the, the greater part is affirming our unity in Mashiach. You know, emphasizing that we are all members of the commonwealth of Israel, that we share in the covenants of promise, etc. These are realities that Paul hit on over and over again. But there is this role also, where if, you, where if you're from a Jewish background, then you glorify God in a special way. And if you are from a Gentile background, you're, you glorify God in a special way. So you know what? Be proud of that. Be proud of your background. Cherish your story. If you come from a hardcore Gentile background and you can't find a single Jewish ancestor in the closet in the last 20 generations, that's good. That's what you're, that's what you're supposed to be. That's your story. The God of Israel came and just brought you in. He adopted you. It's His mercy. Yeah. So just remember, your story is being written by Him. Don't hide any of your story. Tell your whole story. Cherish your story. Like, trumpet it. Because it's all about His mercy. And, you know, if you're from a Jewish background, it's more about His faithfulness. So, that's what I get out of that. Yeah. Thanks for tracking with me today. Like, as I was preparing, like, I really felt the fire burning in my heart. And, um, yeah, I just... I feel like this is a good way to start off the Gregorian calendar, calendar called uh, year. Yeah, we're really, we're really, um, we're starting strong. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. 
If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.